You know, I have been worshiping here at Spencerville for just a little over three years and have learned to appreciate the worship that happens in this place. In both services, the music is so beautiful. And I have learned that you are all appreciators of the closeness of God through music. But I've also learned something about you, and that is that you seem to enjoy a good story. And I've had someone, a young man in the congregation, say to me, I really love the children's story at Spencerville because it sets us up to kind of have an overview of where we're going with the sermon. And then I can kind of pick out what the lesson is going to be and help me clarify what to look for when the sermon comes. I want to thank Amy for doing that for us today. So I decided today that as we kind of take this launch into summer, that maybe it would be time for a good, a good story. I think that it helps to unpack a story and kind of look at the different lessons. And of course, today, I will not be able to tell you every lesson that's in this story. But you know how Jesus said that he told parables because it helped people think? I'm hoping that this week, you will think through this story. You will think of how it applies to your life. And as we look today at 2 Chronicles, we'll be in chapters 13 through 20, if you want to open and try to follow some of the story. I'm hoping that this week you will look back and again remember the power of God in this particular story. You know, I asked some people this week, I said, do you know this story? And some of them just looked at me like, like clueless. Others looked at me and said, oh yeah, I know that story, it's this. No, that's not it. Oh, I think it's this. No, that's not right either. And so today we're going to look at this story of Jehoshaphat and see if we can make it more memorable. I don't know if you have um, ever really thought about some of the stories that we tell our children when they are little in the Bible. If you kind of look at the plots, they're not exactly G-rated, okay? Like you have this kid with rocks and he, he kills his, his enemy with the rocks and then he decapitates him. And, and then we have the story about the beautiful young woman who is snatched away from her home to become a concubine for a, an arrogant king. And then there's the, the one that's about the most cataclysmic disaster in the history of the entire world. And I have to tell you that when I look at those blue books that have the pictures in them, and I see the people in the water banging on the sides of that boat, it still kind of traumatizes me. You know, this, they all tell really important lessons about God's power, but we have to kind of simplify them a little bit so that we can tell the story without it being, you know, too traumatic. Now, this story also has some battle scenes in it, but I don't know why we don't tell it more. I don't know why it isn't new story to us, because the lessons that it tells 
are just as powerful as the ones we really raise our children on. And you know, honestly, maybe even more powerful. So I'd like to pause a moment and ask God to bring this story home to all of us worshiping here today and those online as well. Lord God, it's a great story, but it really is just a story unless you bring it home to our hearts. So Holy Spirit, please speak through me and please be here with every listening heart that they may understand your power and learn to trust you more. Thank you for being here and for bringing us here too. Amen. Well, as Amy mentioned, the story is about Jehoshaphat. And it is a cool name. But I'm sure that when you all were naming your children, that wasn't number one on the list of things that you were going to call them. Kind of a long name. And you know, even though I know about David and Esther and Noah, you know, as a kid, I don't ever remember hearing the name of Jehoshaphat, except maybe when Robin said, jumping Jehoshaphat to Batman. Sorry, if you know, you know. But it wasn't a name that I remember ever hearing in, in Sabbath school. But Jehoshaphat was a king of Judah. He was the great, great, great grandson of the mighty King David. And when we look at the, pro- the protagonists of Bible studies, just like when we look at our own lives. We don't see that God starts them here like on a graph and they just slowly go up and get better and stronger and closer to God. Doesn't happen that way. It's more like a jagged line where we have times of faith and times of failing, times of trust and times of doubting, times of strength and times of weakness. And our friend Jehoshaphat was pretty much the same. But I have to think that when he was a little boy, that he heard a lot of stories too. I mean, you think about Jewish tradition. The oral tradition of sharing stories was something that God asked the people to do over and over again. Remind the children of how I have led. Tell the children the stories of the miracles of how I have provided pass them on from generation to generation. And I have to think that Jehoshaphat, as a boy, sat on his dad's knee, whose name was King Asa, and his father told him the stories of David like it was Ancestry.com. I think he had to be so amazed as, as his dad told him about David, about Solomon, and then says, yeah, don't be like Rehoboam. But the stories that I think had to mean the most to him were the ones that were about his dad, Asa, and his grandfather, Abijah. I think those stories came closer to home because little Jehoshaphat would have known these people. Now, Grandpa Abijah only ruled for three years, 
But there is a story in the Bible about Abijah on a battlefield. It was a great story that had to be passed down from one generation to the next about how Abijah was on the battlefield and he was against the enemy who outnumbered his troops two to one. They were, before, they were behind him, they were in front of him and he was in the middle. And what did Abijah do? If you follow along, I'm in 2 Chronicles 13, 12, because Abijah stands boldly before the, the enemies and he tells him that their idols don't have a chance, that he worships the one true God and that Abijah and his army were that God's devoted servants. Abijah calls out, God is with us. He is our leader. His priests blow their trumpets and lead us into battle against you. And I can almost hear King Asa tell a wide-eyed Jehoshaphat. And just like that, the army cried out to God. The priests blew their trumpets. The soldiers raised their battle cry. And God defeated Grandpa Abijah's enemies. Wow. And then I picture him saying to his son, and you know what, son? When I was a young king, right after Grandpa Abijah died, I had a very similar experience happen to me. I was still a young king, and Zara the Ethiopian came out against me with a million men. That was twice the size of my army. And I called out to God. Second Chronicles 14, 11. Oh Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we trust in you alone. Do not let mere men prevail against you. And son, Asa said to Jehoshaphat, the Ethiopians ran away and the Lord defeated them. Jehoshaphat, he must have told him, always remember who God is. You cannot understand his greatness. You cannot understand his powers, but he will be there when you call on him. It doesn't always make sense, but he is an amazing God, my son. You know, stories like that make a boy proud of his heritage. Stories like that make a boy sure that his God can be trusted. And parents and grandparents, when you tell your stories of faith to your children, to your grandchildren, I want to assure you, they are listening and they are absorbing what you are saying. Now, Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, he ruled for 41 years and he really followed God in an amazing way most of his life. Though at the end of his life, when we were looking at that graph, it really did have a real quick decline there at the end. 
But I think that Jehoshaphat had learned from his father, remembered the stories that he had been told, and he decided that he was truly going to follow God as the king. He was 35 years old when he became the king, and he continued some of the reforms that his father had put in place. He was a level-headed thinker with a lot of common sense. Maybe that was kind of passed down to him from Solomon. And he decided that one of the best ways he could lead was by educating his people. And so he sent out priests and princes to go in among the people and teach them of God and teach them of God's law. And he had them tell the people so that the people really had a close understanding of God. But he also, in his very commonsensical way, he built up his kingdom. He built up his army. He had over a million soldiers. He fortified his cities. He built up the gates. He made sure that they were secure. And he made sure that everything was taken care of so that they would be safe if any danger came their way. It's interesting that the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 17, 3, that because Jehoshaphat made these really good decisions, really committed to God, that God was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father, David. Border nations did not challenge him, but instead they brought him gifts, and he had to build whole cities just to house all the gifts that were brought to him by the foreign nations. Ah, for King Jehoshaphat and for Judah, life was good. And then Jehoshaphat gets an offer from King Ahab, the king of Israel, suggesting that the two of them work out an alliance, a marriage alliance, so that Ahab's beautiful daughter could marry Jehoshaphat's handsome son. And though Jehoshaphat knew that Ahab was a scoundrel who had defied God, he must have thought in his head, hmm, well, he is also, Ahab is also a son of David. We are of the same bloodline. And, you know, maybe God is wanting to just bring us back together. That would be a really good idea. And, you know, he thought marriage alliances are commonly arranged, and it's just common sense that this would be a really good decision. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about him, Jehoshaphat, asking God, is this a good deal or is this not a good deal? He just kind of dove right in. And it wasn't long after the marriage occurred that King Ahab also indicated to him that, you know, I'm wanting to go to war with Syria. Why don't you come with me? And Ahab said, or I mean, Jehoshaphat said, okay, I think I will. Now, this time, 
Jehoshaphat said, before we go into battle, how about we consult with some prophets? Okay. But you know, when you bring in 401 prophets and 400 of them say, yes, God is going to give you victory. And one says, you know, I don't think it's such a good idea. 400 to one. What would common sense tell you? That's what Jehoshaphat said too. Okay, I guess we'll go in. It makes sense to me. But, you know, Ahab, he kind of threw Jehoshaphat under the bus, right? Okay, he tells Jehoshaphat, put on your kingly robe so that you look very regal when we go to battle. And then old King Ahab, he dressed like a common soldier. So if you were the enemy, who would you go after? (laughs) Yeah, right? Jehoshaphat. All the enemies come chasing down Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat's like, oh no, Lord, help. And in that God-sensical way, God intervened and took care of Jehoshaphat. At the end of the day, it was Ahab who died in battle. And though he saved Jehoshaphat's life, God was not pleased with his king. A prophet was sent to Jehoshaphat with a strong message saying, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Yeah, Jehoshaphat knew that he had really messed up. And he knew that his people knew that he had messed up. His common sense decisions had blurred the lines between good and evil. And Jehoshaphat knew he had to do something to clarify those lines again. So this time he went out among the people himself. He traveled out among the people, telling them about God, encouraging them to worship God, encouraging them to choose that which is good. He went among them far and wide, and he set up judges, judges that were good men of God, so that when people came with troubles and they came with conflicts, that the judges would also draw the people to God and his wisdom. It worked well. The people of Judah returned once again to God. All was well. But then one day, towards the end of Jehoshaphat's reign, he got word that a great number of Moabites, Ammonites, and Meunites were on their way to take over his kingdom. It would have been about 80 miles from where they were if they took the road, but if they crossed through the wilderness, 30 miles. They were at the very door. Now, if you were a king with over a million soldiers, what would be the first thing you would do? Sure, common sense would say, okay, call the generals, rally the troops, you know, arrange the troops, um, pull up the gates, fortify the cities, let's go. But you know, I think Jehoshaphat remembered the last time he had gone into battle and it had not gone so well. And so this time, he chose a very different 
approach, a different tactic. Second Chronicles 20, 3 and 4 records, Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Hello? Huge numbers are coming towards your city to devour your livelihood and devour your life, and you tell your people to not eat? What's that about? And yet you assemble all your people, but you include the men and the women and the kids. And you assemble in the temple? Does that sound like a very good battle strategy to you? What kind of nonsense is that? It is God's sense. This time Jehoshaphat knew that he was a man in desperate need. And he simply prayed. You can read his prayer in Second Chronicles, verses 20, 5 through 12. He calls out to God, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for, built for you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, and you know, here he refers back to Solomon giving that prayer when he dedicated the temple. I told you he was listening to the stories. He says, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir are coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You know, really, it's one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. There's no pride. There's no independence. There's no common sense. He just calls out in reckless abandonment to God, help. And God does. The Holy Spirit shows up on the scene through another prophet. And what he says completely contradicts all common sense. The prophet says in 2 Chronicles 20, 15, do not be afraid. That's easy for him to say. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde 
For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord in your behalf. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. I have to wonder if Jehoshaphat had a kind of a deja vu moment right then, thinking back to being a little boy sitting on his dad's lap, hearing those stories of how God had worked in God-sensical ways in both the life of his grandfather and his father. And I wonder if he sat there and thought, can I trust God that much too? If you had been one of the people standing in the temple that day, holding your baby on your hip and wondering what was next, what would you have done? Seriously, as far as common sense, this battle plan absolutely stinks. It's ridiculous. Hold your position, but don't fight. Just stand there. What, and be slaughtered? But in a God-sensical way, the Holy Spirit had already prepared the hearts of all the people, preparing them for such a time as this one. In the book Prophets and Kings, Ellen White writes, for years, Jehoshaphat had taught the people to trust in the one who in past ages had so often interposed to save his chosen ones from utter destruction. And now, when the kingdom was in peril, Jehoshaphat did not stand alone. So what did they do when the prophet spoke? Well, they didn't stand But what they did was fell on their faces before God. Jehoshaphat led and all the people followed. Men, women, and children bowed in worship of a nonsensical God and the faith that he would do what he said. They didn't know what he was going to do and they didn't know how he was going to do it. But they simply threw common sense aside and trusted him. And then they began singing. Yeah, singing. How crazy is that? As the boots of the enemy army marched towards them, all the people erupted into songs of praise. Seriously? Anyway, the next morning... The king stood before his troops with this battle cry, 2020. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established 
Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And then the king assembled the choir. The Bible says that the choir put on holy attire and marched in front of the army in their choir robes, singing their hearts out. What did they sing? The same message that we sang in our hymn of preparation. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And as they were marching and singing and praising God and headed out to where they were going to meet them in the battle, the Bible says that the Lord ambushed the enemies. And somehow some contention arose between those three different nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Meunites, and they turned on each other. By the time the choir crested the hill and looked down in the valley, not one of their enemies were standing. And as Jehoshaphat looked down into that valley, I have to wonder if he had a flashback from the stories of his childhood, the voice of his father, the story of Abijah saying, God is with us. He is our leader. And the words of Asa, O Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Ah, may our children also have the same duplicating God-sensical choices in their life built on the faith of their elders. You know, there was so much booty taken that day from the, the enemy armies that it took a million soldiers and a bunch of folks in the choir three days to carry it all back into Jerusalem. And once they got back, what do you think they did? Yeah, they went to the temple, and what did they do there? They made music. More music, more praise music, more joyous celebration. Because, you know, they were rejoicing with a joy that only comes from faith that is tested, tried, and substantiated by a God who works way above and beyond what common sense can imagine. It's a great story, huh? <laughs> if you haven't told that to your kids and grandkids, you need to put it on your repertoire. But I have to ask you, okay, good story. What does it say to us today? Those of us sitting here, those of you online, What's our take home? I think that we live in a world that is very practical, very common sense, very much you have a problem, you figure it out. 
and I in no way want to demean common sense. If you have ever worked with someone who does not have common sense, you know how much it is a needed commodity, yes? Absolutely. But common sense can really breed self-sufficiency and independence. And in our, I think in our culture, we laud those things. Though we may say trite things like, it takes a village, and oh, we need each other. I don't know that we actually live that way most of the time. I think we go forward based on our own perception, our own understanding, and we solve our own problems until we get in a bind and then we say, help. But I think we're pretty proud of ourselves and how we handle the things that, that come our way. I think that though we are familiar with what Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. I think we're pretty sure that, I don't know, he probably didn't really mean that quite like it sounds, right? If you had been in that group of people in the temple hearing the news that a great horde was coming to destroy you, what would your battle tactic have been? Think about it a second. If it was you, what would you have done? Would you have used your common sense? You gathering the troops, the ammunition, the strategies, paused for a quick word of prayer, and then gone out and showed those Ammonites, Moabites, and the Meunites who was in charge and not to mess with you. Or maybe when you heard that news and listened to Jehoshaphat, maybe you would have remembered the past when Jehoshaphat messed up, yeah? Remember when he went with King Ahab? And you may have said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I am not going with you. I don't trust you. I don't trust your God and forget it. I'm done. Or maybe you would have been one of those people that the Holy Spirit had been moving in your heart all along. You would have been prepared for this battle, not because you had done military training, but because God had been working in your heart and you had allowed his presence to work there. And maybe you would have been one who bowed before God in prayer, honestly believing when he said he was going to do some God-sensical things. The prophet told the people, stand firm and hold your position what would your position have been that day? And today, when you are looking at your very real battles, you know what I'm talking about. The doubts you have, the struggles that are very real, the confusion that you can't work through the doubt. When you are looking at your battles today, where are you standing? Solving it yourself? 
with your common sense? Looking at the past failures and saying, not doing that. Or asking Jesus to live in you and do what seems impossible. In his book, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers writes this. Jesus Christ demands that you risk everything you hold by common sense and leap into what he says. Trust entirely in God. And when he brings you to the venture, see that you take it. We act like pagans in a crisis. Only one out of a crowd is daring enough to bank his faith in the character of God. Only one out of a crowd is daring enough to bank his faith in the character of God. God sense or common sense? Which one will you choose? And what stories will your children and your grandchildren tell about you?